Shut up and sit down. Hello and welcome to Error 204, the podcast where we talk about theology from a Reformed perspective and genuinely nerdy things where there's no content that you won't love. I'm Luke Denner, your host. With me is co-host Mark Fromey. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about Sola Scriptura in honor of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation coming up, and then we'll also be talking about one of both of our favorite game franchises of all time, the Dishonored franchise. So, Mark, what's been going on with you recently? How you been doing? I've been doing pretty good. Um, just wrapped up a class for seminary, so last week was kind of crazy working through finals and studying for all that, but wrapped that up, getting ready to launch into another class starting this week. So, uh, Are you taking one this eight weeks or two? Yeah, I'm only taking one this eight weeks, so it, it's, as as we can play it's more working games. out better. Um, yeah, it's working out well just because uh, since I got married at the beginning of the summer, and classes are pretty intense. Doing only one at a time right now has been helpful because it hasn't been super overwhelming. and I've still been able to spend a lot of time with my wife and play games with friends and stuff like that and not uh, sacrifice every ounce of time that I have to school and work. So it's been helpful in that sense. But uh, still busy, still intense, still a lot of work to be done, a lot of books to be read. So... Yeah, spending time with your wife is always a good thing. Always a good thing. So especially being newly married as someone who's newly married myself. Uh, I'm getting close to being out of that, I guess, though. We're coming up on a year, yeah, here, a couple months. Yeah, almost a year, man. That's so I know it's exciting. It's crazy to think about. Lindsay and I were talking about that this morning, actually, how you and Ashley were almost at your one-year anniversary and how crazy that is to think that our psychotic friend Luke has managed to be married for a year and... His wife hasn't not freaked out yet. Yeah, she hasn't. Like, she's, she's very sweet, very very gracious, very patient, me, which is good. Extremely patient. I can't tell you the number of times people have asked her if she can control me, and she just tells them, "No, you just got to be patient with him." So, if you if you're listening, pray for my wife because she she needs, she needs it. it. She it has bad. to put up with me. Oh, and pray for Mark's wife because she needs it as well. That's she has also to put up true. With Mark. So just just pray for our wives. Keep put that like on the top of your prayer list and keep it there. Oh um, yeah, I'm doing I'm doing pretty good too. I just ate a lot of Chinese food and I got a Dr Pepper here, so I'm I'm pretty happy and good to go. Man, every time you get Chinese food, I remember which is like once a week. Yeah, it's often. And then Chinese food is the, the handful best. of times that I've gotten Chinese food with you. You order enough food that they think you're feeding like a family. Yeah, they gave us like five fortune cookies. That's insane. It, it cracks me up. Anytime I order to pick up, they, they do. They give a bunch of fortune cookies because they think it's for a lot of people. Yeah, I like I like Chinese food. It's so good. Hey, I didn't eat it all today, though. You know, I set some aside, saved, and going to have that for lunch tomorrow. So we're good. Gotcha. So, we're in other words, it's probably going to be eating. eating tonight for dinner, right? Uh, No, no, I probably won't be eating dinner tonight with as much as I ate for lunch. <laughs> so, which is what two people would probably normally consume. But, you know. It's it's all good, but so yeah, we're coming up here on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and and lots of podcasts, lots of authors, lots of lots of people are covering that because it, it was such a defining event in church history, um, that that push to get scripture in the hands of of laymen, 
that push to get back to biblical doctrine. And I think the, the foundational foundational aspect of that that we now call sola scriptura was that getting back to scripture and so that's why that's why i think it'd be good for us to go ahead and cover that and just kind of talk about that and how it how it affects the church today and how it probably should be affecting the church today more than it is i think we'll probably go ahead too just for the listeners so you guys know our plan is our next podcast to talk about soli de gloria which is to the glory of god alone because that's another aspect that tends to get neglected and and when we forget that, we tend to get a very man-centered gospel, which is yeah. sad and and totally just robs the richness out of the relationship God has intended for us, out of what the gospel accomplishes in restoring that. And so both very important topics, and I'm excited to be covering them. So sola scriptura is, is scripture alone. And what the Reformers are saying there is not, not oh, we can only use scripture. Scripture is the only book we can read, obviously. They're saying scripture has to be the ultimate authority. Scripture is what we're testing everything up against, which was contrary to what was going on in Catholicism at the time, and honestly is still going on in Catholicism today. Yeah. And so they were, they're trying to fight back against that. Uh, I think we need to understand, in order to understand what's meant by, by sola scriptura, right? We have to realize that specifically what they're talking about is the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. Uh, like you already mentioned, it, it doesn't mean that you don't read anything else or you don't study anything else, but it does mean that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit through the authors of Scripture, we have before us a sufficient tool to guide us and lead us and direct us in our lives as believers. We don't need anything else. It's not scripture and other stuff in order to be sufficient. It's not like like the Christian life can be lived um, in the way that God commands it to be purely based on the Bible. We don't need other books. We don't need um, self-help books or other commentaries and and while those things can be helpful and I'm not again like we said we're not saying you shouldn't read those things we read those things um, yeah by all means use those things use there, those there are more tools that we can have but ultimately the authority lies on scripture alone there's not authority in these other books we're reading um, yeah and, and I mean there is authority in a sense but there's not ultimate authority like there is in scripture there's authority in them in so much as they line up with scripture and in so much as they're they're derived from Scripture, but they don't have ultimate. This is the Word of God authority that Scripture has, which brings another thing that's tied up in sola scriptura, and that's the infallibility of Scripture. Like in order for sola scriptura to work, you have to agree in the sufficiency and the infallibility of Scripture. I actually want to kind of disagree with you a little bit and go back to the saying that they, they have authority in a sense. I, I don't know that that's true. I, w- I would say that they are beneficial. But, Maybe that's a but better to way say they're authoritative, it's not like, oh, well, you should do this things, these things because the author of this book said so. It's you should do these things because this is what Scripture commands. Now, we can point you to this book and say the way that this author, or this pastor, or theologian explains this is beneficial, but 
there's not any authority behind their words um, in so much as their words are outside of Scripture. Like, when they're, when they're quoting Scripture, there's authority there, but... I get where you're coming from. I, I don't know. I would, I would be willing to say, like, confessions and stuff can be authoritative, again, in so much as they line up with Scripture. Okay. Um, we probably need to define authoritative, though. Yeah, so how would you define authoritative? That's that's what I'm trying to figure out. Maybe I used the wrong word there. I'm kind of backpedaling now that you raised that challenge. That's a good point. Because I was thinking, like, they have authority over or authority to speak to certain issues within our lives. But again, that authority comes from Scripture. So stand alone or by themselves or anything that's not derived from Scripture is authoritative. So it, it, it is backing up to the same thing. And so I think beneficial probably is a better a better terminology to use there. Yeah, when I, when I think authoritative, I think... Um, commanding or, or imperative, right? That when we read scripture and it commands things or tells us to do things, there is an authority behind that from God that gives us a requirement to fulfill those commands, right? It's not um, it's not something that we can get out of or just disregard if we don't like it, but we have to actually heed those words and, and be obedient to the words of God. And so it's authoritative in that way. So how do we take that with, because there is authority given to pastors over congregation, again, in so much as it lines up with scripture, but so how do we take that in light of sermons that are, have been written down to read or sermons that have been preached to a congregation? Do we get to call those authoritative or do we call those beneficial? Well, that's, I, I think that, Because hmm. they've been granted authority by God over, over those flocks in so much as they're doing it in the manner in which he's charged them to, which is sound teaching of the word. So their authority comes from scripture, but they still receive authority. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I don't know. Food for thought for for you listeners, because clearly we don't have this one hammered out. Honestly, we weren't planning on on getting into this aspect of it. It just kind of popped up here. Yeah, I think it's important to really understand what we mean by authority, though. It's kind of why back kind of why I went back to it after you said something because I I think we need to yeah, be and clear I, on what I we mean I appreciate that definitely clarity and and what we're saying is of the utmost importance especially when we're going to be talking about God uh, you have Tozer saying the most important thing a man thinks of is what he thinks when he thinks of God and you got guys like J.C. Ryle in his treatise Simplicity in Preaching talking about how important it is that we're intentional with our words, so we're conveying what we're trying to convey. And so, just so everything's everything's clear on what I was saying there, I want to make sure there's clarity. Scripture is ultimate and final authority, and nothing else has that. Yeah. Nothing yeah. else can, can give that type of authority. So what I was saying, I think other books or other authors or, or people can have authority. I didn't mean it in the same sense as scripture does and so if we're if we're going to go with this is the only thing that has ultimate authority over our lives this is the only thing we don't get to test up against other sources to find its validity to find its authority we can we can do that it's good to do that it's good to, to see scripture proving itself but this is the thing that is the word of god and so at the end of the day we don't get to go oh well i disagree with this part of it so i'm going to discard it because it has authority over my opinion it has authority over my feelings as authority over even other people's writings or researches. And I, exactly, and I, I think that's where this issue really 
um, grounds itself and why Sola Scripture is such a big deal and why it's so important because we, we've, we're in a world and um, have been in a world the, the the reformers were in the same kind of culture where we tend to focus primarily on ourselves and our emotions and our feelings and our desires and so people will go to scripture and read something that they don't like and they either do whatever they can to uh, interpret interpret it away and, and convince themselves or others that the Bible isn't really saying what it says it's saying and or they just deny it as authoritative and say, well, that it's it's outdated, it's old, it doesn't matter, I can move on without this. It, it's not relevant right now, so we don't need to put our, our weight in that, we don't need to put our trust in that. And, and it, it comes out of our feelings and our emotions wanting to and our, our sin nature, it, it comes out of our, our sin wanting to live live our lives the way that uh, we want to and, and don't want to be dictated or commanded or guided by anyone else, but we want to seek after our desires. Yeah, yeah, and that that brings up the, the benefit of what we were talking about earlier. Again, we're not saying solo scriptura, it's sola scriptura. And so we're not saying scripture is the only source we can read because... You, you mentioned people try to interpret stuff away that they're not comfortable with. And that's where the confessions and the creeds and the teachings of the church fathers and, and church history comes into play and becomes beneficial because it shows us, okay, this is how this passage has been interpreted since it's been in circulation within the church. And so we can pretty well rest assured that this is the proper interpretation of that passage. Again, we're not saying ignore those documents. They're good to have. I mean, even systematic theologies are, are very beneficial because the Bible wasn't written in a systematic fashion as far as theology goes. You don't get the Bible broken into books on the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man and the fall and redemption and the return and the kingdom established that you get in a systematic theology. And so, again, those things are definitely beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. But they all, they all have to be tested back against Scripture. And so that's... That's more of kind of what's prompted Mark and I to talk about this. We've noticed a lot of churches tend to endorse or be comfortable with books and studies and videos and teachings from people who would not line up with Scripture. And when you're not saying Scripture alone is going to be my final authority, then we've let emotion or application be up to win the day. And this book has a decent teaching about this, or this book makes me feel good and so I'm going to let this be what I'm using as my lens to interpret scripture instead of using scripture as my lens to interpret this book and, and that's very dangerous yeah definitely and that's it's become extremely common and popular to do because it, it's easy and there's there's popular studies and things that uh, people latch on to without really vetting them very well and and uh or, I mean, you have Sarah Young's Jesus Calling that's just swept through the yeah, church and yeah. has all these multiple editions and has some pretty, pretty egregious errors in it. Yeah, that I mean, the shouldn't be taken lightly. Like, like uh, Tim Challies points out in his book review of it, he he says that you know she makes a very bold claim in her introduction that uh, essentially her claim is that the words in Jesus Calling are the words of Jesus, and so. Whether intentional or unintentional, the, that claim that she's made in that is saying that this book is on the authoritative level as scripture, which totally breaks sola scriptura. Yeah, and and that's 
again, the very thing that the reformers were fighting against in the Catholic Church, and, and something we still need to be pushing back against today. I have an article pulled up here, and it's actually from CNN of all places, but it, it's going through and it talks about Pope Francis, and I'll, I'll put a link to this in the show notes for you guys, but it's talking about Pope Francis wanting to change the Catholic Church's teaching on the death penalty, which, right or wrong, that's probably a debate for another podcast. But the point is, here's this guy who, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Catholic Church has been teaching that the death penalty is something that can be implemented in certain cases, and he has the authority under their system to just come in and change it. And that was the same way it was back when Luther and Calvin and Zwingli were fighting against this, was the Catholic Church just kind of set the doctrines and set the rules and they were allowed to apply it how they saw fit and they were the official spokesperson of God and there's there's issue with that because these men are still men and they're still fallen and they still have a sin nature and so they're still going to teach and promote error and so if we're setting them up as the final authority then our, our authoritative source is ultimately going to be flawed yeah definitely that's that's where one of the primary issues comes in with that and like you said that's one of the reasons the Reformation even happened uh, is you had you had the Pope who was set up and established as being, you know, they, there's talk about the Pope being the vicar of Christ. Well, that's wrong. Um, that's not what Scripture teaches. And uh, I remember we, we were at Together for the Gospel a couple of years ago. Uh, or I guess... Oh, we need to find that video and link it. Was that here. last year? Yeah, we could link that video. Uh there was, uh, uh, I think it was two years ago. There was a guy. I feel like it, I don't remember what his name was, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say it wrong, but we'll link it below. Um, anyway, he talks specifically about the Catholic Church and their system, and he's an Anglican preacher, pastor out of uh, Australia, and he talks about how the Pope claiming to be the vicar of Christ is straight up blasphemous because of the Holy Spirit is the vicar of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who communes with us and communicates to us and gives us clarity and revelation on the words of God, right? We have special revelation through the Holy Spirit to interpret and understand what the Bible says. And the Catholic Church has essentially said, no, the Pope does that for us. And so to put him in the position that is part of the Holy Spirit's role in the revelation and revealing of scripture is is just flat out blasphemous yeah that, that's philip jensen i wanted to say jennings but i didn't think that was right jensen okay philip yeah i pulled up here and we'll link that but yeah it's a great video guys great to watch um you can tell he kind of got off script and in, in a few places yeah, it was a, it very was a q&a with uh guy. philip jensen and mark dever and mark dever which was pretty awesome to watch so yeah, man, if there's a guy that I want to host my panels, it's Mark Dever. He is fantastic. Yeah, he's at awesome. That. He's really good. Like I have panels. Yeah, panels. <laughs> That's a funny joke. <laughs> if, if you know, I ever were to have a conference and have panels, I would want Mark Dever hosting them. So when that doesn't happen, we'll get him. Yeah, there you go. But yeah, it was. And, and another interesting aspect of this, actually, before we get into that, let's, let's hit the, the importance of it really quick within the church, which we, we've already touched on a little bit. But how, how that affects just the health of the body, how that affects the the sermons that are taught, the studies that are done in, in Sunday school, in other 
studies outside small groups, all, all these kind of things, which at least that's how it happens in most Baptist churches and, and how we need to be clinging to Sola Scriptura and seeing it pour out into these other areas. And so what would you say is, is the biggest impact of falling away from Sola Scriptura within a church? Well, I think it's, and I, I talked about it on the last podcast, I think ultimately it's, it leads to people not taking God's word seriously. Uh, it leads to, you know, believers in the church and, and at times even pastors and, and leadership in the church not relying on God's word alone as the primary authoritative, as the only authoritative and uh, established teaching for us to follow. And so people start reading other books in place of God's word or people just stop reading God's word altogether because it isn't placed in the position of importance or priority that it needs to be. They stop taking it seriously. And when it's not taken seriously, it's not learned. And so people aren't studying God's word. People aren't knowing more. They're not learning more. You can't you can't learn about something without actually spending time in it, right? Like any any job you ever work in your life, you have a training time where you're saturated in all kinds of stuff so that you can learn the trade. You know, I started a new job up here in Michigan. I've been doing it for a little over a month now, and it's it's been very grueling to have to learn a new job. Um, there's a lot of differences between this job and my previous job, and the training is me following other people around, watching what they're doing, being given stuff that I don't know how to do so that I can learn it, and just constantly trying new things. And I'm reading through different documentation to make sure I understand all the steps and the processes. And if I wasn't taking that seriously, I wouldn't know how to do my job well. So if if it takes that kind of effort on our part for our jobs, then actually taking the time to study God's word I think needs to be that much higher on our priority list because how are we going to live a life that glorifies him if we don't actually know or understand what is required of us? And so I think that's where it really manifests itself is people don't take God's word seriously and they neglect it altogether because it's not established as something that's important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, it is. And uh, I love that illustration of having to study and work and and pour time into it for your job and we do that with so many things just naturally that we want to learn about i mean in school obviously we go through learning about things and and different topics if you're going to college you learn in a specialized area about your topic before you're you're ready to actually do something in that field you have people training to play sports you have people who learn a lot about sports we know a lot about star wars because we spend a lot of time reading and digging into and and i was gonna say we just, spent the, we just spent the last half of our podcast last time talking about star wars theories because we've studied it and and, and looked into it because we like it and we care about it right and so we do that with so many things and so often we, we fail to do that with with scripture and i think i think one of the primary reasons for that is we can study star wars and we don't have to change we can study chemistry and we don't have to change we can study all these other matters and we don't have to change, but if we truly start digging into scripture, it forces us to either harden our hearts or to change. And so there, there is, there's a scariness just just dead honest. There's a, there's a scariness to digging into scripture because you don't get to walk away unchanged. Basically all the stuff you said. And also you see, you see Timothy, Second Timothy four three playing out in churches as they drift away from sola scriptura. 
and so doctrines that are harder the, the doctrines of grace um, topics concerning hell and eternal damnation all those things kind of start falling to the wayside as we let solo scriptura fall aside because they're not doctrines that we're comfortable with or they're not doctrines that we like or they're easy to comprehend and so when scripture is not the ultimate authority I can just ignore those things because I don't like them and so you get, you get guys like Rob Bell which I know is really old news but you get guys like Rob Bell coming out saying there's no hell you have people denying the trinity because it's too complex of a doctrine and all of this happens when we drift away from scripture being our ultimate authority so that that's kind of that's the purpose of, of solo scripture is setting scripture up as our ultimate authority so that our theology is accurate, so that we see God accurately, and we see the world accurately, and then hopefully live accurately. And by that I mean live how we were are supposed to live, bringing glory to God in light of those things. That's, that's the good part of Sola Scriptura. There are dangers, I think, that come along with this doctrine, this idea, with this, this uh, teaching. And uh, it sounds crazy, because you would think, well, what's the, what's the danger in letting Scripture alone be the authority? I think the danger is people who misunderstand and abuse Sola Scriptura. And one of the things the Reformers really fought for was getting Scripture into the hands of lay people. But there's been a, a, a very big push recently of, well, Scripture is easy to understand. Anybody can read it and interpret it and understand it and know what it says, which is true in the sense of the passages concerning salvation. Salvation for the believer who's had his heart made new by the Spirit and had his eyes open can understand the things of Scripture. Salvation is not hard to see in there that it's it's grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. But then there are other other doctrines, other things that come out of it that take time, they take that work, they take that study. But I think because of this this individualization of well you can you can understand this for yourself, just read and understand it for yourself, without any further training in hermeneutics and how we actually should go about approaching scripture and reading scripture. It, it, it can become very dangerous because then you get people taking and twisting scripture and, and pulling verses out of context and, and making it say things that it was never intended to say. And I think with that, like, having practice, having training helps in those things, but even with that, the, and this is one of the reasons, too, that you don't want to take other authors or theologians' words as as gospel, to use that phrase, you know, other other writers aren't um, authoritative or trustworthy in the same way that Scripture is. Uh, that doesn't mean that everything they say is going to be bad and you should ignore it, but uh, in reading anyone, you have to read with discernment because every person that's writing on Scripture or preaching on Scripture is ultimately a fallen and sinful human being. And so it's not difficult or uncommon for them to be inaccurate or wrong in something they say. It's, it's easy to look at Scripture and, and begin to make it self-centered because we're a selfish people in our sin, right? There's, there's entire the, theological systems that essentially are, are man-centered because we like it to be about us. And so when we're not intentional about um, training and understanding scripture the way that it is supposed to be, it can be very easy to fall into a very man-centered gospel and a very man-centered theology. And so 
just being careful about that in, in your own interpretation and then in others as well. Like it, it's easy for anybody to to misconstrue or misinterpret something because we we want it to be about us. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is we want it to be about us and it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that is a danger. And on the flip side of that, there's also a danger if you're ignoring all of these other theologians and all these other commentaries and, and yeah, definitely. such. If you're coming up with an idea from scripture that has not been taught in church history, that's a major red flag. Like, People have been interpreting scripture for a long time. At this point in history, it is ridiculously unlikely that you are going to discover some nugget that nobody else has found. A, a new way to phrase something that, that hits people today? Yeah. A, a new wording for thing that makes it more accurate? Yeah. But a, a brand new teaching or brand new doctrine, you're probably not going to pull out from scripture. So if, yeah. if all the majority of church history is speaking against how you're interpreting a passage... Probably don't go around teaching that. Probably not. Probably spend some more time researching and digging into and seeing what is actually being taught there. And that's something really important that I think I think we've lost too. Is I mean, I remember Dr. Griever at Missouri Baptist University constantly driving into us, Scripture has one intended meaning. Each verse has one intended meaning. Now the applications out of that can be various, but it means one thing. And so we don't get to come to Scripture and go, oh, well, this means this to me and this means this to you. It has one meaning. It just can have various applications coming out of that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of the crux of or rule number one of, of hermeneutics or interpretation for Scripture, um, at least from a proper perspective, is that there is one meaning or one interpretation with many applications. But it can't mean now what it didn't mean then. Uh, the the author's intention hasn't changed. And so we have to read it and understand what that intention was. And, and like Luke said, there can be multiple ways to apply that to our lives, but it doesn't change what this passage is saying. Yeah, and I think I think in order for Sola Scriptura to work, you, we actually, I don't think I know, in order for Sola Scriptura to work, we have to have proper hermeneutics being taught within the church, being taught to people. And and not a not a you know year long we're gonna meet once a week class, but people at least have to know. Okay, we need to we need to take this scripture in context. We need to look and see what the original intent is. We need to see not only the context within this passage, but within the whole council of scripture, within the historical setting it was written in, the cultural setting it was written in. And and do we have to do that for every single verse? Uh, no, probably not. But especially when we're getting to trickier verses to be able to do that and at least come to a point of going, okay, I can see where this guy's coming from, or I can see how this could mean this, is a lot safer than just reading a verse at face value and going, oh, well, this literally means exactly what it says. Hermeneutics, I think, goes hand in hand with this the Sola Scripture topic and seeing that. And, and also, again, not throwing out church history, not throwing out the confessions, not throwing out the creeds. It definitely goes alongside this because a lot of people's tendencies to overcompensate and say, oh, well, then I only trust scripture. Feel a need to steer away from confessions and catechisms and creeds because it follows closely with Catholic structure, at least. The difference is we don't treat those as authority, whereas they would. All right, so that's that's probably all we need to talk about for the Sola Scriptura. That pretty much 
sums it up, gives some application of it, see the practical necessity of it within the church. And um, we, we gave you guys our contact information to ask us if we want to cover any topics or anything like that you'd like to see on the show. Feel free also to send us questions about stuff we say. Because if we do say something that sounds off, if we say something that sounds it might be um, concerning, it, it very well could be. Or it could just be that we didn't choose to word it the best way possible. And so please raise those questions with us and, and ask, and we'd be happy to either address it on an episode or reply to you directly, depending on the situation. But always please feel free to contact us at our Gmail address, as well as Facebook and Twitter. So with that said, there's our theology side of the show. If that's all you're interested in, you might as well tune out now because it's about to get super nerdy. Super nerdy. Although... This actually, t- this will touch into touches a little bit. There's there's some parallels here, some tie-ins to things like sola scriptura that that are interesting. Yeah, so we're gonna be talking about the Dishonored game series, which is Mark and I both love those. It's your favorite, right? It, it is. It is my favorite game series, and it's up there for me. It's probably the single player game that I've put the most amount of time into, at least modern AAA titles. And there are a lot of theological implications and stuff that come up that I wouldn't mind getting into either as we go through discussing this yeah, series. Definitely. So, you know, if, if you're curious, go ahead and stick around. If you're not, go ahead and tune out, and we're glad we had you this far. But without further ado, here we go into Dishonored. So, Mark, since it's your favorite series, and since you definitely know way more of the lore and the stuff about Dishonored than I do, <laughs> why don't you just give us, like, a, a rundown of... Let's just start with the initial so we don't overload people with information, because there are three games. So let's start with the first one, Dishonored 1, background and rundown of the game. Spoilers here, if you're going to play it, probably do want to tune out now. Yeah, there's there's going to be spoilers, probably. It's, it's hard to talk about this game without spoilers, um, because there is, like you said, there's so much to it. So, I mean, it's, essentially, it's, it's about... Oh, man, I love this game series. It's about... Corvo Atano initially is is the character that you're which playing. Which is going to be the name of whichever has a child first. Get to name him that. <laughs> Good luck getting our wi- either of our wives on board with that one. So, so you playing as Corvo and he's the the Lord Protector. So so he's part of a a a country or nation, whatever you want to call it, called Dunwall, uh, and they have an empress named Jessamine Caldwin and. And Corvo is her protector. Um, he's essentially her bodyguard, secret service, however you want to look at it. Um, a great warrior kind of guy. And and so he, he protects her, and the game starts out with him returning to her to talk about there's a rat plague that's happening in the city. And so talking about possible solutions. And while he's there, essentially there's there's an assassination attempt where they steal the Empress's daughter, Emily, and kidnap her, and then they kill the Empress. So it's more than an assassination attempt. It's it is an assassination. actual assassination. And in addition to that, they leave Corvo there, and they blame him for the assassination. They they call him the assassin of Jessamine. And so the game essentially is, and ultimately it was it was within the government um, that the assassination was started and. Uh, the royal spy master takes over as Lord Regent and essentially becomes the emperor. And uh, there's this whole coup essentially against the empress. And so the game is about uh, 
one Corvo has been dishonored uh, because he's been had had framed. an assassination pinned on him. Yeah, he's been framed and dishonored from his position, and so there's there's a there's an an element of revenge within this game. There there really is an element of um, seeking revenge, and and I think you can go back and forth, and especially that. once you get into the lore of the game and again spoilers here when you see find out about the love interest between Corvo and Jessamine yeah you definitely see that revenge motivation coming because not only have they killed the person he was sworn to protect they've also killed the person he loved and on top of well, all and, that and pinned it on him going going more into that uh, spoiler territory is that you later find out it's hinted at and then in the second game it's established that Corvo is actually the father of Emily, uh, the Empress's daughter, and so not only have they killed his the woman that he loves, but they've also kidnapped his child. Um, Which all just seems like a bad idea. Going to be a bad idea for a guy whose job is literally killing people. So um, it makes for an interesting like kidnapping Liam Neeson's daughter. Yeah, why would you do that? Oh man! And so the whole game kind of revolves around restoring your name, restoring power to the proper. Uh, people, which is Emily as, as the next in line to the Empress, and it's a very stealthy. There's a lot of options in the game. You can play stealthily. You can go absolutely insane and massacre everyone with your sword. And uh, there's just a lot of different options. And there's there's the ending is impacted. And the 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 world is impacted by the decisions you make, which is one of the things. Which I is love one about of it. yes, that's one of the things that makes this game series as great as it is is the whole, it's, it's called the chaos system. And so there's high chaos and low chaos depending on how you play. And so as you kill more people, chaos gets higher, you end up with a darker world and a darker ending. Low chaos, the world doesn't get as, as run down, as overrun as it would with the dark um, high chaos. And you also get a, a brighter ending. It's still not necessarily happy, but it's definitely brighter. Yeah, it's definitely a brighter ending. And so Corvo, when he he gets rescued from prison, and he goes to he gets rescued by um, essentially a little group of rebellion. Uh, they're called the Loyalists, and they they save him. They bring him to this little outskirt area called the Hound Pits Pub, and they've got all these plans. And, and so each mission is essentially taking down one of the key figures within the the coup and the new government who was behind the assassination of the Empress. And, and again, with that chaos system, it's really cool because for each takedown, you have the option for lethal or non-lethal. Yeah, so there's always an option to not kill somebody. And there's always the ability to take what I would call the high road and not, not exact vengeance, but, but more justice in that sense. I don't know. Some of the non-lethal actions are definitely still exacting vengeance. Yeah... I mean, tying a guy to a chair and branding him. Yeah, there's there is that, and but all that said, I mean, the, it's you're not. It's murdering still better than killing. Yeah. You're not murdering people. Yes. Um, and Corvo's given before the first mission, after the prologue, and everything. He's he's given a marking from a person called the Outsider, and the Outsider is essentially a god figure. Um, He's he's hard to describe because he's not really a god. Um, he he's more like if, if you have ever encountered those people who talk about 
the void and, and the void control. That's very much what he is. I mean, the place he resides is even called the void, and he's very that kind of ambivalent entity that is there but not super involved. He, re- he reminds me more of a god out of, like, Greek mythology, where he's, he's there, he's crazy powerful... For the most part, he's just watching, and he finds the world entertaining, and he he does he does things within the world just to kind of see what happens. So, like when he gives Corvo these powers, he even talks about how you know you're in a position to make the world a whole lot different. And so, what are you going to do? Are you, are you going to? And, and it's that kind of looming dilemma of am I going to go and and leave a trail of blood behind me and kill everyone, or am I going to? Um, to seek to to spare people's lives and be more merciful, um, and, and the outsider throughout the whole thing essentially is just watching it all unfold. He doesn't really know what Corvo's going to do. He doesn't really care. He's just curious. Um, it, it's an entertainment thing for him, and and so it's he's a very interesting character that really developed a lot throughout the game and throughout the whole series. Um, the the third game being called Death of the Outsider. Um, which is a whole, whole other thing, but that we'll get into in a little bit. He's an he's an interesting character for sure because he's so he's so much not like the Christian God, right? He's not. I mean, first off, he's not the creator. He's not God in that sense. But as a godlike figure, he still is. He has no motivation. He has no allegiance to good or evil or right or wrong. He's he is just there. Um, he doesn't care one way or the other. The world is just an entertainment thing for him for the most part, and he messes with it at his own leisure to see what's going to happen. And it's so different from a god who loves and cares about his creation, is involved in his creation. Um, it's just it's just polar polar opposite, totally different. And it's honestly, I think, a good reflection of how a lot of people misperceive the Christian God. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of this this dictator, and uh, dictator is the wrong word for the outsider, but this this all powerful force that just kind of intervenes for his own amusement and doesn't really care about the outcome of the people that he's acting on or acting against I guess yeah yeah he's definitely an, an interesting character as it progresses and so Corvo gets that mark and like Mark already said proceeds to use these powers which is also another really cool just mechanical aspect of the game you're going to hear me talking a lot more about mechanics than the actual story because again that's Mark's much stronger there than I am but as far as mechanic wise, so you have you have the ability to high chaos, low chaos, and then you have the ability to to structure these powers around that, around your play style, and so you can build yourself in a way where you can move around the map a lot faster and a lot stealthier by possessing rats, by blinking places, Which is or you have the option to get, yeah, or you have the option to get powers like Wind Blast, where you literally just unleash a huge blast of wind and knock enemies back, so it's great for big brawly-type playing and and stuff like that. One of Mark's favorite things to do is you can possess humans, and you can wait till someone fires a shot, possess them, and walk around in front of their bullet and let them take themselves out. Yeah, because you also can have a power where you basically stop time, and so 
someone can shoot a gun and you stop time, possess the person who fired the bullet, and then walk them in front of the bullet, and then start time up again and they just get shot. It's, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting, the game plays out and gives a lot of interesting options. I've, I've played through the game more times than I can count because there's so many different things you can do. Um, different little decisions you can make and how do they affect the story and all these kinds of things. And so it, it, it keeps itself very entertaining for a long time. Uh, it's, it's a fairly old game. I mean, this, the first one I think came out in 2009. Uh, Something like that, yeah. And, and still holds up to games today as far as gameplay and graphics and all that. Yeah, it's still, still a fantastic game. And it, it's, it's actually really, really impressive because I'm someone... Mark plays games for the story. I very much play games based on graphics or gameplay. I'm a dirty casual and so the fact that this is a game that keeps me invested and actually has had me come go back and play through several times is, is pretty impressive because I'm also a dirty social gamer. And so typically, single-player games just aren't my thing. But this is one that, that I really enjoy and has a lot of replay value. It came out in 2012. It was five years. It's five years old. So Still impressive yeah, very, that it's holding up very. as well as it is. I'm trying to find your playtime for Dishonored right now, so talk for a little oh, while. Dude, I don't even know. Uh, it's it's up close to 100 hours, I think, and I played it some. You're at 83 hours, I just got it. And I, I played through it once or twice on Xbox before I had it on PC, so um, I've played it many times over those five years, and it's, it's a blast. I still go back to it, and I still play it. Um, I just introduced my wife to it not too long ago, because I thought she would like the story aspect, and she's more of a... She, She's a very casual gamer. She likes like simulation games. She's been playing Stardew Valley a lot recently, and um, but she does like story-driven stuff. And so essentially, what we did with the first game is I played it and she just watched. Um, she seemed to enjoy it. She she's talked about it some, and we we've at some point are probably going to go through all the the extra campaigns that came with the the first game, and then the second game, and the third one that just came out as well. Um, we'll, we'll probably sit down and go through those as well because she's, um, like I said, she she likes the story aspect of games. So, yeah. Okay. So I just pulled up on how long to beat, and it's twelve hours to beat the main story. So you have been able to play through the main story on your Steam account if you stuck with that timing. And I know you can also run it. I have not stuck with a that timing. Faster. As I say, I know you can run it. A decent bit faster than my my last playthrough. I looked it up the other day because I was talking to somebody about it. My last playthrough was three hours and twenty minutes. Yeah, so that shows you how many times Mark has gone back and, and played this game, and just again that the replay value that it has. Um, it's fun. So anyway, so this story wise, let's get back to wrapping up the story of the main game, and then we'll talk a little bit of kind of the implications and and stuff that comes out of that, and so. You, you go through deposing all these figures and you get to kind of what you think is going to be the last mission. Again, major spoilers, so I'm really, really hoping that you're yeah, not still if, listening. If, if you have any interest in this if game, If you're still listening, listen. please, please, please stop now. Um, because this is this is a big thing. So you get to what you think is going to be the last mission where you're deposing like the last guy who's really in your way. And you take him out and you get back to the Hound Pits pub and this group of rebels 
in, in celebrating with you actually ends up drugging you and trying to kill you themselves. And so it turns out the whole time, they really didn't have your interests in mind. They just wanted to be the ones in, in control. And again, why why people cross Corvo? Especially, these are the people who just sent him after all of the guys who kicked him out the first time and saw him exact his vengeance on them. So why they would cross him, I still don't understand. It's like that Skyrim logic of, oh, do you see that guy who just killed the dragon and consumed its soul? Let's mug him. Yeah. Like, it, it just makes no sense. Yeah, not at all. But but anyway, so yeah, it, it, it ends with them turning on you. You kind of have to get free again from a little bit of imprisonment. That's where you get, I think, the biggest the biggest choice right there for the chaos system is in that particular mission because you have an option to either basically nuke an entire map with electricity and kill everyone present or nuke them with a less powerful version of electricity and just render them unconscious. And so you're basically either going to be committing mass murder against these people who betrayed you or you're just going to be rendering them unconscious and let justice work out down the road. Yeah. Yeah, the the, the life and death choices that come throughout the game are always always interesting and then before that you go on a mission where you are you, you essentially come face to face with the man who actually killed the empress and and you have the option to to kill him or not uh that's that's the decision that you get to make and so i think that's a a big deal that's just an interesting position for the game to put you in of here's a man who essentially caused all of this in a lot of ways what do you want to do? And it's it's totally up to you, and, and you can be merciful, or you can get your revenge on him for the death of the Empress. Yeah, and the cool thing is that the canon of the story, because obviously with something that's going to have extra games, they have to set down a canon. Even with the choices. If you can yeah. play different ways. Um, and I think it's cool that with the canon, they have Corvo sparing Dowd. Yeah, yeah, Corvo does not kill the guy that assassinated the Empress in the canon, so. Yeah, which is cool. But anyway, yeah, so at the very end, though, you take out the baddies, you reestablish Emily as the rightful empress. And you're, and you're the lord protector for her this time. And that's how Dishonored 1 ends. Yeah. And so, actually, let's go ahead and let's just maybe a little quicker than that one now that we've kind of gotten into mechanics and stuff. Go ahead and give a quick rundown of the second, second and third games really quick. So, Dishonored 2 picks back up again with Corvo and Emily. And this time, it, it set a decent bit in the future. Emily is, is grown, and she's the Empress. And if if you don't play the DLC for Dishonored, you're kind of lost coming into Dishonored yeah. 2, because yeah. it, it builds off of those. So in the Dishonored DLC, you meet this character called Delilah, and she has otherworldly powers. She's a witch. She is actually the head of, Yeah, she's the head of a coven of witches, and was actually trained by Sokolov, to paint and do stuff like that, and Sokolov's a character you meet in the series who's like this he's an really smart artist and all kinds of stuff. So, really smart guy. Yeah, he, he invents stuff. He's an artist, and so he kind of took her under his wing. She left that, and actually finds a way to access the void herself, which is where the outsider is. And you're not supposed to be able to go there unless you're dead or have the outsider's mark. And even then, you can't just access no, it he, freely. He, he has to you, pull you yeah. into it. But Delilah figures out a way to get into it. And so the story of Dishonored 2 is Delilah shows up at at a ceremony. And, Mark, I don't remember what the ceremony was for. So I'm going to uh, defer th- to you I on that. If I remember, it's, it's the anniversary of the death of the Empress from the first game, I think. And so they're having a big kind of 
memorial and time of remember remembrance and she shows up and um basically lays claim to the throne you, you have the option this time to either play as corvo again or you can play as emily this time because she's been trained by corvo to do all of the same stuff and so at in that moment you get to choose one or the other and then depending on who you choose the the other one gets basically turned into stone by delilah and so the whole game becomes you trying to reclaim the throne, remove Delilah, and save either Emily or Corvo, depending on who you potentially save. Yeah, potentially save. Again, spoilers. At the end, you do have the option to leave them in stone and just take the throne for yourself. Yeah, I actually ha I need to do a playthrough because I haven't done it that way yet. I I did it once and it broke my heart. Like it was so hard to force myself to do that, just because. Especially knowing Corvo and Emily, you, you don't want to leave one of them trapped in stone. Yeah. So I, I yeah, want to play this game again it. already. I know I'm. I need to finish. I'm on my third playthrough of it. It's a stealthy stealth run, and I need to I need to wrap that one up. But but yeah, so you actually end up traveling to Karnaka, which a is different a different country, setting, city, place within within the world and within the. Yeah, and it's actually the home of Corvo. He came from Karnaka. And so you get to see his, his hometown, basically. And and that's that's interesting, because with it, a big theme in the original Dishonored is the Rat Plague that's going on throughout the city. And now the Rat Plague has been defeated, and you're in Karnaka. Blood flies. But there are these, these things called blood flies, which are ten times worse than rats. Yeah, I take the rats every day. And... And, but there's a blood fly plague going on in Karnaka, so apparently this poor world is just always plagued by something. Yep. But you get to move through Karnaka, you get some new interesting abilities with Emily, which is, is pretty cool. And then again, same same sort of idea of the chaos system, same idea of you're going through and taking out key figures on your path to get to get to Delilah to get the throne reclaimed to figure out what's going on with her, because that's another thing that actually happens if you choose Corvo, is Delilah has the power to take away your outsider mark, and so you realize then that Delilah's way too strong for you to just man-fight. You're going to have to figure out where she got this power from and figure out a way to stop her. And so that's the theme of, of this one, is the story is figuring out how she became so powerful and how do we stop this. And it's it's interesting. And the other two main mechanics, Mark, if there's anything I forget about after this, bring it up. But the other two main things that come in with this one are A, like the second mission, you get the option to either receive the Outsider's Mark and get those powers again, or decline it and play through the whole story without any of these supernatural powers that you would normally Which have at your disposal. Which is way harder. It's stupid hard. So I made the mistake of trying... There's an achievement for going through the whole game without killing anybody, an achievement for going through the whole game without being spotted, and an achievement for going through the whole game without any powers. And for whatever reason, as a guy who sucks at Dishonored as it is, I thought it would be a good idea to try and play through and get all three of those achievements in one run. I made it like one mission in and gave up. It was it was horrible. I, I'm not convinced that you could actually play through the game and go the the ghost, which is not being spotted by anyone. I, I'm not sure you can go through and get ghost while also not having any powers. It would definitely be very, very difficult, if, if possible at all, but I think you do need, at least need the blink or the far reach yeah. to navigate around the map, both of which are like that kind of teleport function. Yeah. So, but yeah, so you get through, you get 
figure out that Delilah has these powers from the void and that she's actually like sealed her soul away because that's the other thing that's confusing if you play through the Brigmore Witches DLC Dowd kills Delilah yeah. and so you're like how is she how is she back and it's because they've managed to resurrect her and she's got her herself sealed away though and in like a different a different body and so you end up taking her soul and if you can return her soul to her body then you can kill her and and end the madness but otherwise she's unkillable and so you end up doing that but in the mission where you're learning that that's where the second second main difference i was wanting to bring up or improvement on mechanics and it's only for that mission but it's really cool is you get something called a timepiece yeah the time that mission's so cool the, the timepiece is super cool. So what the timepiece does is it lets you travel between two points in time. So you're on one map, and you can either be in this dilapidated, rundown house, or you can pull up your timepiece, and you can move into an, an it's, older it's the period same of time. house. It's like four years before or something like that. Yeah, and it's it all of a sudden there's guards all around you, and so you get some really cool play with. Okay, there's two guards there. Flip the timepiece walk through the door, get past the guards, and then move back in time, or move, yeah, move back in time, and you've successfully snuck past the guards. Now, some of the other interesting stuff that comes in with that is you may be looking at an open doorway that you're getting ready to walk through in one time period, and then you switch the timepiece, and that doorway's blocked, or there's a guard there, and so it just it makes for some really, really creative really and interesting mechanic, gameplay. really different. It was. Unfortunately, it was only for that one mission, and that's because of the way the story goes, which, since we've already spoiled everything else, we won't spoil that for you. Yeah. But, especially because there's a really cool thing you can do with that mission if you play it a certain way. Yeah, there's actually a couple of things you can do with that mission that that can make pretty big impacts, so. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But, but yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a really neat mechanic that's added in as well. And then again, at the end, you defeat Delilah, and you have the option to free either Corvo or Emily from Stone and both take the throne, and you have the option to just take the throne. And I've actually never played through Dishonored 2 on Low Chaos, so I don't know how much the endings vary. They vary quite based a bit. On that. They vary quite a bit. So, um, yeah, I'll have to go back yeah, and do I'm that. Gonna, I'm, gonna spoil I'm, that I'm very much a... When I play stealth games... Yeah, don't spoil it for me. When I play stealth games, I'm very much a... No one will see if there's no one to see. And so I, I try to stay hidden. In other words, Luke is actually also, really bad at stealth games. I also like killing everything in my path. It works. It works. I don't get discovered. I just also don't leave any beating hearts on the map. So, you know. Yeah, you're bad at stealth games. So <laughs> I can I can do okay at them if I really, really try. I just I don't usually feel like tryharding that much. That's fair. Dishonored, is, Dishonored and Hitman. Hitman's another game we should those probably talk about at some yeah, point. Those are good games. But those are the only two games I've actually like gone achievement hunting and and tried playing on harder than normal difficulty because again, dirty casual over here. Yeah. So. Yeah, you and I. Those are, are games in that, that sense for sure. Interest me enough. We really are. But and I do I I enjoy a good challenge. I enjoy a good game, but Dishonored is good enough that I enjoy a really good challenge. So. So that's how Dishonored Two wraps up. Death of the Outsider you end up taking on Billy Lurk, who, once again, building off of the original Dishonored DLC, Billy Lurk is the person who actually holds you in place while Dowd kills the Empress in the original game. And so you end up fighting as her, 
kind of trying to regain your honor, make make a name for yourself. Not not a name for yourself, but pay back what you did, basically. At least that's the feel I got from Death of the Outsider. Yeah, well, and there's there's some more stuff in uh, the DLC, too, where she actually betrays Dowd and all kinds of stuff and gets exiled by him. And so she's trying to... Um, right that wrong, Yeah, right that wrong to Dowd. And, and basically all of the wrong she's done. That Death of the Outsider, in my mind, is probably has the most theological implications of the three games. It definitely does. It definitely does. There's, there's and that's why I wanted to go ahead and get through them. Yeah, there's such an emphasis on... Um, the Abbey of the Everyman. Abbey of the Everyman and all kinds of stuff. What the yeah. Void does, what the Outsider has done. And so we'll get we'll get to that here in a second. Um, this one's really easy to run through because it's not a super long game. It's actually not wasn't even a full release or a full price release when it came out. It's about half the playtime of the other two games. But yeah, and it, it also took away some mechanics that I really love about Dishonored. It's still worth playing. I would recommend picking it up on a sale. Uh, personally, Mark might say otherwise. I mean, it depends on how much playtime you're going to get. For me, the the thirty dollar price tag on it that is its initial price tag is worth it. I've already played through it twice, and and I'll play through it more. So that's just the yeah. Way see, I am for me, it game. probably wasn't. I played through it once, and I didn't have an urge to play through it again. I had an urge to go back and play Dishonored Two, where I had a little more freedom, which is what I'm going to talk about as far as mechanics go here. So they took away the power system. You get three default powers that you don't even level up, if I remember mm-hmm. right. They're just yeah, three they default just powers that you get. And they also took out the chaos system, which for me was the bigger hit than the powers. I can see in a non-full AAA, full-blown game giving us three powers. And they were honestly three good powers that were fun to work with and all you needed. But taking away the chaos system felt like you were taking away the heart of Dishonored for me. Because it, I could just run through and butcher everybody and it didn't matter. I mean, not that I wasn't going to anyway, but still... <laughs> You could just run through and butcher everyone without changing the outcome of the game. Yeah, the, the, the only so, change in the outcome comes down to the very end, really. The very end, when you have the option to kill or spare the Outsider. Hence the name, Death of the Outsider. And I actually haven't yet. haven't played through and spared him yet. I, I want to... I'm mid-playthrough right now, and that's this one I want to actually spare the Outsider because I want to see how much it actually changes the story. I, it, it should change it drastically, really. Um, yeah, it should. I'm curious yeah. too because yeah, I haven't I haven't done that again. I've only played through it once and obviously killed him the first time because I didn't even know that was going to be an option when I got there. And by the time I had gotten there, it was too late just because of the way the game plays out. It was too late for me to spare him. But but yeah, so in that one, you basically your your goal is to rescue Dowd, which you accomplish, and then. You are on this quest to find a knife that can kill the Outsider because Dowd and Billy are convinced that the Outsider is the cause of all evil that's been occurring in the world. Again, this is where the theological implications come into play, but they're convinced that he's the, the, the source of the evil that's been occurring in the world. Which, again, if you've played through Dishonored 1 and 2, it's clear he's not. Yeah. But that's their perception of him. And so she finds the knife, you get to the final mission, which I will say that to you. The final mission felt like kind of a letdown for me because there was no big boss fight. It was just, we're going to throw a bunch of little minions at you. We'll have two really big ones that are going to scare the crap out of you that you can just walk right by without them seeing. And then Did you, you say two? Can. There was like 30 of those dudes. The 
big freaky yeah. dudes. You must not have. Ex there are only two for me. You didn't explore the map enough or something then, because there is definitely more than two. No, I only ran into two, but and thirty is an exaggeration. I remember at least five. And I did learn very quickly that just bum rushing those guys was a bad idea. Yeah. Because I definitely tried that. I was like, oh, I'll just take them on. And I died within like a second. Yeah, they one hit kill you, no matter what your health's at. Yeah. So, so there you go. If you're still listening and we've spoiled everything else, at least you got a tip. But, yes, yeah, so you go through and, and have the option to kill or not kill the outsider. But back to... Let's get let's get into kind of the theological side of this. So the Abbey of the Everyman is present in all three games. Plays a decent role in Dishonored too. Yeah, the overseers are the followers of the the people of the Abbey, I guess. Oh. Yeah, and so the Abbey of the Everyman is basically the religious Delitz. order yeah. that's present in the Dishonored franchise, and they are against the outsider they think that anybody who does anything with the void or is associated with the outsider is a heretic and so because of that Corvo is forced to hide his outsider's mark the whole time he's being the lord protector and so that's that's also an interesting thing but in especially in death of the outsider they become a huge part of it like you spend a lot of time exploring things from the abbey reading scriptures that they have reading their books and so it's it's interesting seeing like for me I know I was interested in seeing how closely the strictures of the abbey resembled scripture yeah yeah they definitely they they read like scripture and they um I mean some of them felt like proverbs just reworded basically yeah that's a lot of the the overseers writings and stuff come across like proverbs or or maybe even a little bit like combination of like proverbs and law um it's yeah just, it's really interesting to read through and then looking at the way that they devote themselves to the strictures and devote themselves to their writings um the way that they live their lives and um they they go to an extreme that f from our perspective or a real life perspective seems uh pharisaical or legalistic in a lot of ways yeah, and I mean they're they're very big on they they execute people that have been accused of heresy. Yeah, execute. And it doesn't or, take much for that to happen. Yeah, not at all. I mean it's basically Geneva up in there. Oh man, don't go there. <laughs> I'm I'm kidding. Um, if you caught that reference, I'm sorry. But yeah, it's 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 interesting to see and and just the whole concept of of the the way I play is going to affect the world around me, and so my actions have consequences. But I can make the world a better place, or I can make the world a darker place based off my actions, seeing that humanistic worldview throughout the Dishonored franchise is, is very interesting, especially in one that deals so heavily in the occult. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. You see that human nature, that Pelagian heresy of man can do good or evil, and it's left up to him, what are you going to do in any given situation? And I, I find it even more interesting that canon is almost always Corvo making the good choice, and so Corvo filling that Messiah-type role of this is the guy who had the choice between good and evil and always choice good, chose good yeah. and made the world a better place for it. And then you also have the, again, back to the perception of the outsider, and the outsider being the actual cause for evil and the actual cause for bad. And I think, again, that's a lot of people's perception of, of God is that he is the author of evil. He is the, the causation of 
everything wicked that happens, and so he's the one to blame for everything that happens. And so is God sovereign overall? Yes. Does he decree all that occurs? Yes. But the responsibility for evil, the responsibility for sin, falls back on man, not on God. Yeah. And I think I think the way they play with the outsider in this game is, is revealing of that nature in men to take the responsibility that should be placed on us and instead turn and place it on God. Yeah. And I would say, too, that's a danger for those outside of the Christian faith who begin to hear Calvinistic teachings. And so they hear us talking about this God who's sovereign and overall and in control. And if all we talk about is the sovereignty of God and we neglect the goodness of God, then we end up painting the outsider for them. We end up painting this God who's in control of everything but separated from his goodness, it, it makes him out to be this monster instead of making him out to be the good and righteous and holy and just God that he is. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, those are those are some of the uh, the theological things that you can see throughout Dishonored. And again, it, it definitely makes it interesting just getting that glimpse into yeah, that worldview. And whether or not the writers had all that in mind when they were writing it, uh, I don't know. But it, it does portray that, in a sense, at least. So... But yeah, basically we just took a really long time to say story-wise, mechanics-wise, replay value, play Dishonored, play play all three of them. Again, my recommendation, wait for sale to pick up Death of the Outsider. Honestly, wait for a good Steam sale and you can pick up all three of them. Dishonored Definitive Edition, so that's the first game with all the the two DLC campaigns and the Dunwall City Trials DLC as well. All that goes on sale for like... Anywhere from three to like eight dollars, depending on the sale, and so you can pick up that whole game really cheap. And like Luke brought up, I've I've put over a hundred hours into that game, so definitely have gotten my money's worth out of it. Yeah, even at the full price tag, you've yeah, and I didn't get it at the full price tag, so right. So so yeah, strongly recommend this game. Um, but yeah, so we're grateful for anyone who listened. Hope you'll hit us up again. Um, again, say if you have questions or or topics you want us to cover hit us up at error204 podcast at gmail.com hit us up on facebook or twitter yeah Yeah, join our group We, we can have many good discussions there follow us on twitter and again thanks for listening guys